It has been such a joy. I don't remember the bad times. God sort of takes those away. And all I remember is the saints that have gone on before us, that have died, that I've pastored, those that have even left and gone to serve in other places, and those that are still here serving faithfully. You really encourage me as your pastor, and I appreciate that. To that end, let's open to Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2. Now, I'm trying to prepare for a 20-year anniversary sermon. I was having a hard time, and God just sort of laid it on my heart. I preached this message as the first message I ever preached at Gasol Baptist Church. It was in my files. Dug it out, brushed it off, cleaned it up a little bit, I hope, and uh, changed a few things, and so that's what we're going to do. It... Uh, was preached 20 years ago to let the church know what they were getting. They had no idea. And uh, sort of my heartbeat, and I hope I haven't lost this heartbeat, but we're going to look and see. Mark 2, beginning with verse 1. Again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and he was heard he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. So that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, it is so good to be in your house with your people and Lord, I know they're your people. And Lord, we all are the sheep of your pasture. You always take care of us. You always bless us. You always do what's best for us, even when we don't understand. Thank you for being such a gracious God. Continue your graciousness by breaking the bread of life with us today. Take your word. Expound it to us. Let us understand. Let us feed from it and grow from it. Let it meet our needs Spiritually at our deepest point of need. And Father, uh, as we prepare to eat afterwards, just bless our time of fellowship. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) Herschel Hobbs pastored, I think it was the First Baptist Tulsa for years and years. Great man of God. He served as a convention president in a time when there was lots of things going on. Uh, Lots of things that were not so good. He shared this as he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He said because of the unusual pressures that were happening in his life between being a pastor and the convention president, that uh, he had to have frequent examinations from his doctor. His doctor insisted on it. 
During one day, they did a cardiogram, and they found that there was pressure building up in one of the central arteries in his heart. And uh, that alarmed him, but his doctor said, don't worry, I can take care of this. And he put him on a diet, what every pastor wants to hear, a diet. But Dr. Hobbs went on to say that after two weeks, it was gone. The pressure was gone. Everything was back to normal. And the longer he stayed on the diet, the better he felt. And his cardiologist said this to him. He said, this is a problem that occurs a lot to a lot of men in their 50s and often kills them by the time they're in their 60s because of the pressure of their jobs. And he said, if they would just come to the doctor sooner, they would be okay. And I think there's a parallel that exists between that illustration and what we experience spiritually. Because of the hectic pace of our lives, and it doesn't ever seem to slow down, uh, there's pressure builds up between what we need to be doing here and what we need to be doing there and what we need to be doing here. And we try to categorize it. And, and we need to understand we forget that you don't categorize God. You don't put him in a box. You don't put him on a shelf to take out on Sundays. God is Lord of all of our lives. And if we don't get a handle on that, we get that pressure built up till we just can't stand it. And it really kills our spiritual lives and especially it does that for churches we can be doing lots of good things as a matter of fact we can be serving the lord but if we're not careful the pressure builds up from all kinds of places till we lose the joy of our salvation you see when i ask the church all those years ago what's the main purpose of the church got lots of answers well it's to disciple my kids well, it's for me and my family. Well, it's, it's for this or that. You know, it, it, it's so that we'll be more like Jesus. That's always a good answer. But this passage, I think, reminds us of some things. You see, Jesus said some things. In Luke 19.10, he said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. In John 3.16, we are told that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send uh, his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might have life. He who believes is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the only begotten son of God. Second Peter, one of my favorite verses says it this way, God is not slack concerning our promises, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What those verses and this passage tells me is that the church's heartbeat should be one of reaching the lost. That if we don't reach the lost, we're failing to meet our mission. If we don't reach the lost, we are a social club and not a New Testament church. If we don't focus on the lost, we are disparaging the precious name of Jesus. See, the church's heartbeat has to be for reaching the lost. And, and there's all different kinds of people in a church that either help that or hinder that. As a matter of fact, from this passage of Scripture, there are three types of people in the church. And it won't take you long to identify which one you are and which one you want to be. 
The first one is this. I see the fellows in verses 1 and 2. The fellows. It's just a bunch of folks. It's the crowd. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. Again, he entered Capernaum, and after some days it was heard that he was in the house, and immediately uh, many gathered together, so there was not room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. And then you go down to verse 12, and immediately he rose up and took his bed and went out in the presence. They all said, oh, it's amazing. He's glorified God. We never saw anything like this. Who are the fellows? They are the crowd. Okay, I'm trying to find my outline because I didn't fill it out. Okay. Uh, You see, we have the people. Now, who are the people or the place first? It's Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' uh, centralized location when he was doing ministry in that Galilee area. The house is mentioned, like everybody know where the house was because that's where he stayed, stayed with Peter in his house. Remember, Jesus said he didn't have a place to lay his head. So he's at Peter's house, he's at Capernaum, it's his headquarters, his base of operations, however you want to do it, and then, then we get to the people. So you have the place, then you have the people, and... The people do this. The word spreads that he's in the house. Jesus didn't come in announcing it. Jesus probably would have liked a break, but the crowd becomes so great that they just fill up the house. And it's so great they fill up the house and it's overflowing out into the street. You can't even get near the door because there's so many people. And you need to notice some things. Who makes up the crowd? Well, it's the curious just want to see Jesus. There are some of his followers who think this is the Messiah. And there are some that are just interested. There are some uh, that are pious. We'll look at them in a little while. There are some that have problems and they're there to be healed by Jesus. But everybody in this crowd, these fellows, has a need. And what I want you to understand is uh, they, they came... To the right place. They came to the right person. But they did the wrong thing. What do I mean by that? See this crowd inadvertently. Or maybe on purpose. Because they had needs for Jesus. They kept the paralyzed man from getting to Jesus. So. Who who, who are these? You see it. I think the attitude of the crowd is Sort of contagious in a church, worse than the flu. Yeah, you know, some of you say, no way. Yeah, because it's the attitude of selfishness. They were there for their needs to be met. They were there for what they needed. They were there to get theirs, no matter if anybody else got it. This paralyzed guy could wait in line like everybody else. No compassion. They turned inward. Hmm. Sort of like the little girl and She's a first grader, and uh, they lived up most Wisconsin, and so her teacher arranged for a special field trip. And they went to a dairy and got to tour the dairy, and the guy was showing them around. The farmer's so proud of everything being so clean and how they milk cows, see the baby calves, got to feed some baby calves, had some milk there they got to try. I mean, it was an all-out great day. And finally, at the end of the day, that farmer there, Said, do you have any questions? One little girl raised her hand. Said, well, yes, honey, what's your question? 
and she sort of looked like this and said, did you notice, did everybody notice my new swim, my new snowsuit? Totally self-absorbed. Self-interested. That's the crowd. You see, it's what's in this for me. There's a difference between a crowd and the committed. The crowd, I don't want you to miss it. The crowd wants to know how the church can serve them. The committed want to know how they can serve the church. That is a vast difference. You see, the crowd is selfish. The crowd, we don't want to be like. Amen? You should say it louder than that. No, there she got it for me. The crowd, you see, is warm and toasty on the inside. Holy huddles. And cold and hard on the outside. We don't let anybody in when you're the crowd. When you think about it, here Jesus is preaching to them the word of God. How wonderful that must have been. He starts healing them. How wonderful that was. They see somebody that really needs healing as they're looking. The crowd doesn't part. The crowd doesn't say make way. The crowd doesn't say let this guy in. The crowd ignores him. Church, you know, we've been at this for 20 years together, and you're, 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 you're doing good. You're doing excellent. Because I've watched you, and you've gotten used to, if somebody's in your seat, find another one. That should be our motto. If somebody's in my seat, I can sit elsewhere. That should be our motto. If somebody's in my seat, I can sit elsewhere. Now, you might want to get in the general thing or just make them just get in beside them because I tell you something if they're in your seat this week and you scoot up next to them and wiggle in can you see me wiggling you you, you want to see it over here Bobby Elizabeth's turning red now I don't even have to look I can feel the glow you do that to them they may sit by you next week you do it two weeks in a row they'll move Brother Gary, you got some friendly people. A few of them are too friendly. See, that's the way we want to be. When, when a new person comes into Sunday school class, and you've been in the same Sunday school class for years and years, they feel like an outsider. Guess what? It's not their job to feel welcome. It's your job to make them feel welcome. It's my job to make them feel welcome. Okay. Ask them who they are. Well, Brother Gary, I did that, and they've been members here a long time. Well, if you hadn't seen them, and you've been here for a year, guess what? They need to introduce themselves again. Don't be embarrassed about that. I meet people all the time that I should have already met. They're out there in the community. Knock on the door. Well, I've been a member up there for 20 years. You have. Who's the pastor up there? Um, duh, duh. Said, I'm the pastor up there. I hadn't seen you in 20 years. That's an advantage of being in a place for a while. Put it on them. You see, take them to worship with you. Sit by them. Get their kids introduced to Sunday school. Otherwise, we're a crowd of folks, but we're not very friendly. And you are friendly. So let's keep it up. Let's just be remembering we don't want to be the crowd that is set. This is called the... I'm going to talk a little bit more practically about how that works out. This is called the meddling part of the sermon. That's my Sunday school teacher. That's my class. That's blah, 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 my ministry. Blah, 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 blah. No, it's not. 
If it's yours, it's not doing any good. If it belongs to Jesus, you're working for him. I had a, a church one time. They were so locked into their Sunday school classrooms. You know, they decorated them. and You know, the ladies put little doilies on. There's nothing wrong with that. But we were growing so fast, we had, had room for children. They wouldn't move for the kids. So we had a Sunday school uh, redeclaration Sunday where they signed the title deed of their classroom over back to the church for whatever was needed. All but one class signed it. Even I was smart enough to know that's a battle I couldn't win. So they stayed in their class. And I let them have their classroom and their teacher. But every new person that came in, oh, no, you can't go to that class. Go to that one. Oh, no, you can't go to that class. Go to that other one. Oh, no, don't go to that class. And when the teacher finally asked me what was going on, I said, well, if y'all aren't going to do with the church and get with the program Jesus is doing in the church, why would I put new members so you can infect them? They didn't like that. They didn't like me till the day I left. And then they were happy. Do I say that out of glee? No. But see, they never did learn that they were part of the crowd instead of part of the committed. The second thing that I see here, I see the foes. Now, if you hadn't got it, you don't want to be a fellow, a crowd. You don't want to be the foes because this is the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, And some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. God can only forgive sins. And God was right there in the flesh. And they wouldn't acknowledge him. They were the foes. You see, as soon as they had foes, you thought of the scribes and the Pharisees. Those that stood up against Jesus. But... And we know immediately we don't want to be like them. Amen. I know some of you are wanting to be like them. I know it. You didn't say amen. These guys were the experts in the scripture. Can we turn that? Yeah, we got that one on. I'm fine. Brother Gallen, don't worry about rushing. We're fine. I'll talk louder. You see, they were experts in the law, but let me tell you what they were really experts in. The traditions. How things were done. Jesus went so far as to tell them one time, you teach the traditions of men above the word of God. There's nothing wrong with tradition. I want us to understand without tradition, we wander around and make the same mistakes. But when tradition is more important than getting it done for God, then tradition has to be put in its place. They were so against Jesus, everything he did, they nitpicked. They'd accuse him of this. When he'd turn around, they'd accuse him of that. When he'd confront them, they'd back off. You see, they were directly opposed to God's Son and came to be working for God. Do we understand that? They were more interested in the status quo than seeking how God was working in a man's life. I want to say again, we do not want to be God's foes. You see, I've been told a few times, Now, Brother Gary, it's always a holy voice. A lot holier than mine. Now, Brother Gary, the church is growing too fast. Satan's going to get in here. I got news for you. 
Satan's already there when somebody's complaining about the church growing too fast. And I'm usually looking them straight in the eye. Ooh, that hurt. Why are you being so ugly? I'm not being ugly. But who controls how fast the church grows? Didn't Jesus say, this is my church and I will build it? Didn't the Lord say, unless the Lord builds a house, they who labor, labor in vain, who try to build it? Do we understand that God grows people and God leads people? If you don't think God doesn't have a sense of humor, He made me your pastor for 20 years. You got a joker. If you don't think that God hadn't led us all together, look around. Different types of people, different personalities, different education levels, different economic levels, and we still love one another. Boy, God has a sense of humor. I didn't even address how some of us look. You notice I included myself in that. But you see, I think we get too hung up on things that are traditions. Now... So you hear me correctly and don't misquote me. Hear me. I think whoever you are, however you're dressed, if it's the best you have and you wear it to church, it honors God. I'm going to say it again. If it's the best you have, it honors God. Now, please don't be like some folks that tested that a few years back and wanted to wear halter tops and short shorts to the church. I don't like that. Okay. If you want to wear shorts, wear shorts. I don't care. If you want to wear flip-flops, Wear flip-flops. Okay? If you don't wear a three-piece suit, wear it. Okay? Whatever. You wear what you have. Okay? That's an outer thing. We've got lots of rules we've made up. Don't wear your hat in church. Really? I get a lost person come in the back and they're wearing their hat. I ain't telling them to take their hat off. After God saves them, he'll convict them if they need to take their hat off. Now, do I know it shows respect because my mama raised me? Don't wear your hat in the house, boy. Pop! And she just didn't mean the church. That was in the house. This is a different day. Okay? Don't run in the church. Well, the reason I don't want you running, you're going to fall, bust something, or break somebody else's leg, and then it's not good. And we do it out of respect for God's house. I understand that. But when a little kid is so excited to be here and they're skipping up and down the aisles, don't you... I'm glad they're excited to be here. If you don't like that, you can take it up with me later. And I'm hard-headed on that issue. You say, why are you hard-headed? Because didn't Jesus say, don't stop the little children from coming to me? And yet our criticism will discourage them and keep them from coming to Jesus? He said, if you cause one of these kids to stumble, it was better that you had a millstone hung around your neck. Does anybody remember what a millstone is? What's a millstone, church? It grinds. How big is it usually? You can't lift it by yourself. So if you hang one of those around your mitt, he says, better if you cause a child to stumble. It's better for you to have one of those hung around your neck, like the gangsters do the concrete shoes, and they threw you in the deepest part of the sea. That's what he said. See, we don't be foes of God. Traditions are important, but traditions is not what I worship. I worship the God of the tradition. Amen. You see? Let me put it another way. What upsets us more? 
When somebody didn't go through proper channels at the church to get something done or that our neighbor is lost and dying and going to hell if we don't witness. Why did it get so quiet in here? Sometimes y'all think I don't hear what you talk about in the parking lot. They come and tell me. They want to encourage me and tell me that. That was a joke. And I'm not being ugly, but you see, we have a choice to lead them to Jesus by our love or turn them away by being critical. You're going to lead them by love, aren't you? You're going to lead them by love, aren't you? Ooh, I like the way that sounds. Sarah, you got me turned down like that? That's good. She'll turn bright red now. It scared her. Yeah, it did. It scared everybody. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what's going to happen when we surrender to God and just go after lots of people. I, w- I really want you to hear this. Well, they'll get saved. And they'll make us uncomfortable. Have you ever noticed how new Christians make you uncomfortable? They've got a thousand questions. I'm always afraid they're going to ask something I should know that I don't know. And I have to tell them, I'll get back to you. I'll look it up. They'll make us uncomfortable because they dress differently. They talk differently. They don't know everything that's going on in the church. My whole point is, some of those people make us uncomfortable, but God loves them just like he loves me and you. Don't be a foe. Let's go on. I'll quit chasing rabbits and get out here on time. The last group is the group you want to be in, so say amen. Amen. This is the positive part of the sermon. Say amen. amen. It's the friend. First of all, look at him in verses 3 through 5. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And notice, when they had broken through, they let him down on the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. And he goes on down there and he asked the Pharisees and scribes, why do you reason about this in your heart? But that you'll know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins here on earth. I say to you, arise, take up your bed and walk. And he said, get up, boy. Get out of here. The guy took it up and took off. Now, now think, about, think about what's happening. You see, they had a priority, these guys did. They, did. they did really several things right. But the first priority was get this man to Jesus. Amen. You wonder what's going to fix our world? Get those folks to Jesus. Amen. That's our job. Amen. The second thing, they had four important strategies. First, they knew someone in need. Anybody know somebody that's got a need? Okay, y'all are lying. I'm going to make you late for the potluck. Does anybody know somebody's got a need? I didn't say what kind of need. you know somebody in need? Raise your hands. You're obviously not as hungry as me. So they knew somebody in need. They had to get him to Jesus. Secondly, they recognized the need for a team effort. I can't do it all. Brother Ronnie can't do it all. The deacons can't do it all. Your Sunday school teacher can't do it all. You're here so we can all do it together. A team effort. They took four of them. They put him on a bed, sort of what I'd call a little traveling gurney, and off they went to Jesus. He's at the house. We heard he's here. You need him. We're taking you. 
Wonder what that guy thought because he couldn't raise up and look around. Where are we going? Where are we going? Just be quiet. We're taking you to Jesus. Who? Jesus. You'll know when you see him. I'd like to have been a fly on that wall. And then they were creative. Lots of y'all are creative. I wish I was creative. My wife's creative. That's why she came to my life because I couldn't. I don't have a creative bone in my body. I think something goes together and Elizabeth say, oh. I said, wouldn't this look good right here? No. Don't, don't try. I said, I want this paint color. No, that's awful. See, they were creative. I mean, think how creative they are. The devil put obstacles in their way. The crowd's too big. They can't get in. Nobody's letting them through. In that day, the houses were built with flat tops and usually had stairs going up to the outside and around to the top. And a lot of times that's where they would go up there and pray. It's where they'd go up there and eat sometimes in the right weather. So they'd just take him up the top. Well, fellas, what are we going to do now? One said, I know. <laughs> Let's tear a hole through the roof. You talk about expensive. They had to fix that hole after this was over. I wonder what, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes are listening to him, judging him. And all at once, stuff starts coming down from the roof. I'm not telling you to tear a hole in our roof. Some of you knuckleheads. Stuff is falling. Jesus looks up. They start lowering him down. I wonder whose little hymn they tore off to make the ropes with. Creative. Team effort. And then, they had that passionate belief in their mission to get their friend to the master. Their mission was to take him to Jesus. They knew Jesus could help him. Jesus could heal him. Jesus could do these things. And it says something very interesting. Jesus looked up and saw their faith. Didn't say he saw the man's faith. Maybe that was inclu- maybe he was included in the there. But he saw the four guys as they lowered the thing, smiling. Can you just see the goofy looks? Here he comes, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. We believe in you. And when he saw their faith, the guy gets there, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Evidently, now I want you to think about it, evidently, something in his life, some sin in his life had caused this paralysis. Sin doesn't always do that, but in this case, he didn't say, You're healed. He said, Your sins are forgiven you. Rise up and walk. And victory was theirs because... They believed in the Master. Too many Southern Baptists are practical universalists today. Everybody's going to be saved somehow, some way. It's not my job. Wrong. Even though God would like everybody to be saved, they're not going to be. They're going to refuse Jesus. But some of them aren't going to hear about Jesus because we're not after the lost. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. So which, which, which person are you? Are you one of the fellows, just the crowd, you're in it for the good times and you're going to disappear during the bad times? Or you one of the foes that some things are more important to you than just, just preaching about the lost folks? you one of the friends. I'm going to do whatever Jesus needs me to do, period. If you need to come this morning and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, we want you to come. Make it public. Get it right. If you need to join this church by baptism or letter or statement and use your gifts here, we want you to be a part of us. Don't be a crowd. Be a friend.
If you're here and you just need to come and rededication, I'm not saying that you've been doing all kinds of what we label as awful sins. You've just been enjoying a lot of things, but you hadn't been doing the main thing. And you just want to tell Jesus to help you major on the main things. We want you to come. If you have some burdens that are keeping you from feeling the love of the Master, we want you to come. Father God, it's time for us to come. You've called us here. You've shared your word through music and through the Holy Scriptures. And we just ask, we'll do your will in Christ's name. Amen.